It's really such a delight to be with you on such a beautiful evening, especially after, for me, it was really so touching to get to hear all your sharing and to, to feel kind of the, the collective, at least for me, this kind of collective love here. And and really just looking forward just to sharing with you a few reflections this evening, in particular around this reminder um, to remind you tomorrow the retreat does end. <laughs> and the real retreat begins. And, and sometimes I appreciate that feeling sense at the end of the retreat is, is I'm beginning just another retreat of, of this next aspect of, of my life. Actually, when Giko and I were practicing in the Zen tradition, you probably remember this, there's so many different kinds of sashin that would happen, these, seven day re- these intensive seven-day retreats during our training periods. You know, there was a kind of a general session. And then you'd have Jidori session, getting ready for the Dai session. And then after Dai session, then you'd have Nyoren Kashi session, which I, I learned the, the, what that meant from Giko, our translator. Um, kneading the dough of that retreat back into your life. And I really so appreciated that. And it gave this feeling of like, okay, we're done with this one. It's just another retreat. So I invite you to see if that uh, resonates in some ways as you uh, make that transition tomorrow. And I want to begin with a, a quote from the Buddha about practicing in a place like here. He says, practitioners, seeing two advantages, I resort to remote lodgings, like this one, in forests and jungle groves. What two? What are those two advantages? For myself, I see a pleasant dwelling in this very life. And I have compassion for later generations. <coughs> Seeing these two advantages, I resort, resort to remote lodgings in forests and in jungle groves. Isn't that interesting? Hopefully all of you have experienced the first one. This pleasant dwelling in this very life. Here we are, the Vyasita, such a pleasant dwelling in this very life. But also what's here is really cultivating compassion for later generations. And this is where the Buddha finds it. He finds it in places like this. It's embedded with what we're doing here. So yeah, it's a pleasant uh, abiding in this very life. And it's also what we're doing here about compassion for later generations. And when I slow down with this land here and I really... uh, allow my heart to open and to feel into what's here. Sometimes what arises, the perception that's arising, is it's like there's the feeling that all that's going on out there is compassion for later generations. 
that's all it is. Compassion for later generations through kind of what we do with the water, through offering. Those birds, those trees behind me, the grasses, the beautiful butterflies, the flowers. To me, it's so amazing when I allow that in. It feels like they're all working together to create this healthy, thriving, dynamic ecosystem. It's like their entire bodies, their entire being is the embodiment, the full embodiment of a kind of offering, a kind of generosity. Like an aspen tree, their leaves, right? what a beautiful gift. It's, it's food for some of the beings out here. And for others, it's shade. The bark is probably similar, sometimes food for some and a home for others. It's like their whole body, their whole being is simply just a gift. Out of compassion for later generations. Even their roots, they're all tied together, helping each other out. And also offer a home for all kinds of fungi, those roots. And as I said, intertwined with other aspens and other trees and plants offering nourishment at times. And even after an aspen tree dies, one of the things I'm so moved by is that within their death, it offers yet another home, a gift to the soil by enriching the soil. So many gifts out there. Sometimes it's the gift of offering a meal with one's whole body. Sometimes it's the gift of taking in a meal for later generations. It's just teeming with that. Can you feel that out there? Generosity out of one of the two advantages of being out, uh, of being out here uh, for compassion for later generations. So I'd like to share with you a, a poem that I feel also embodies this quality of generosity, the kind of generosity that's intertwined with compassion for later generations. And it's a, a poem by really such a fine poet, uh, Lee Young Lee, really appreciate his poems. It's entitled, The Gift. Maybe just get a, a background. You're going to hear, you know, he's telling the story from his childhood of his father pulling this uh, splitter out of his hand and how that, that cascades into another event. He begins, To pull the metal splinter from my palm my father recited a story in a low voice. I watched his lovely face and not the blade. Before the story ended, ended, he'd removed the iron sliver I thought I'd die from. I, I can't remember the tale, but I hear his voice still. A well of dark water 
a prayer. And I recall his hands, two measures of tenderness he laid against my face, the flames of discipline he raised above my head. Had you entered that afternoon, you would have thought you saw a man planting something in a boy's palm, a silver tear, a tiny flame. Had you followed that boy, you would have arrived here where I bend over my wife's right hand. Look how I shave her thumbnail down so carefully she feels no pain. Watch as I lift the splinter out. I was seven when my father took my hand like this. And I did not hold that shard between my fingers and think metal that will bury me or ore going deep for my heart. And I did not lift up my wound and cry, death visited here. Instead, I did what a child does when he's given something to keep. I kissed my father. Sometimes it's these small things in the world, like taking out a a sliver of metal with such tenderness, with such compassion, makes all the difference. These small, almost imperceivable gifts that I feel are so important for our world. And maybe you can feel that. Can you feel that heartfelt beauty of offering a gift like that in the poem? And do you hear how it extends beyond just one life into the lives of others? Right? The, the father takes out the sliver of metal in the son's hand, and then years later, the son takes out the splinter from his wife's hand with such tenderness. And then how it ends, which I so appreciate. It's not some triumph over death but rather the gesture of tender love. As the poet says, I I did what a child does when he's given something to keep. I kissed, I kissed my father. And really it's, it's these small gifts that have the potential of making a difference that I want to emphasize this evening as a way of getting ready, as a kind of practice to bring forward into the next retreat that begins tomorrow. And maybe it's just a small difference, yet still a difference. And it's these small, almost imperceptible, imperceptible gifts that I feel are important to me. 
And I think maybe one of the reasons I share this with you is that so often I can feel the pressure, the pressure to make a big difference. And maybe it's the same for you, especially when I'm confronted, when my heart feels the immensity of such issues like climate change that impact us in this land or systemic racism. And that's the interesting thing about this land, though, is it's like I get a interesting message from it when I really listen in, at least this time. It will be different tomorrow. <laughs> that there's something important about the small gifts, too. Like the small gifts of the pollinators or the grasses and how they house and feed the creatures. <laughs> who can, I know, for me, can be easily forgotten by this perception of this animal called a human being. And what I want to propose, just as a way to prepare oneself and to explore the next retreat, that one of the small gifts that can be given, that I feel is a small gift for uh, coming out of the compassion for later generations is simply my dharma practice that I'm doing regularly. It's small, yeah. I'm not saying it makes a big difference, but it makes a difference. And maybe that's what practicing is all about, is it's, it's just simply releasing the heart so that I can wholeheartedly give, like, fully give in a fully embodied way like the aspen tree. That that's what, as Aaron calls, path activity. Just to embody that. To do that through regular meditation or through study or through exploring, meditating on the Brahma Viharas and embodying and expressing the Brahma Viharas in this life. And the, the, the Buddha points to this for an aspiration. As he says, a, a wise person of great wisdom, when they reflect, they reflect only of their own welfare, the welfare of others, the welfare of both, and the welfare of the whole world. This is a wise person of great wisdom. And I find this passage interesting because it does shift a little bit later on in Buddhism. And in, in, in one sutta, you know, the Buddha kind of talks about different practitioners. You have practitioners that just practice for their own benefit. You have other practitioners that just practice for the benefit of others. And then you have practitioners that practice for their own benefit and for the benefit of others. Of course, it's the last one where it's like, oh, that's... That's, that's, that's the real deal. <laughs> Which I so appreciate. It's not just about the benefit of others. It's, all, it's also about the benefit for myself. Because they're intertwined. And then for the whole world. So I get to give these gifts to myself, which then in, in their nature are gifts to others and to the whole world. So how to nurture these small gifts? 
that arise out of her Dharma practice. And I, I kind of want to get into the, the nitty-gritty practical, because this comes up so often, which is probably the most common question that I hear from practitioners, regardless of how long they've practiced. What's, the, what's that question? How many minutes a day should I meditate? <laughs> that's, that's pretty close. How many minutes should I do? <laughs> close. And similar. How do I maintain a regular practice? Which is kind of tied up with how many minutes every day. How do I maintain a regular practice? And, and I uh, do want to say that, that, that regularity, whatever that is for you, is so important for this path and this practice to unfold. There needs to be some kind of regularity. And if you can't, you know, if, if it's difficult to meditate, can you keep in contact with the Dharma in some way? I remember one practitioner uh, shared with me, they're having such a tough time for, uh, in the year their la- uh, a year of their life to meditate, that they would listen to Dharma talks by Ajahn Suchito every day. <laughs> I think that's beautiful. It's a way to stay connected with the Dharma. What is that for you? I do find it's really important to have a regularity of meditation, but I want to acknowledge there's times where it runs dry a little bit. But what's going to be that connection? And it might be the regularity of some kind of study or reading or the regularity of chanting or the regularity of connection with spiritual friends. Or the practicing of the Brahma Viharas, not only on the cushion. And in light of this, I, I find it, it's, it's important to remember, at least in uh, these early texts, the, the central paradigm used by the Buddha is it's what's called a shaping paradigm. He talks so much about shaping the heart and the mind and the body in a certain direction. So that it slopes and slants and inclines like a river towards awakening. So it needs that repetition, rep, uh, repetition. That it needs that that regularity. So I I want to point out, at least for me, and this might be different for other individuals, that kind of the one-off deep spiritual experience, yeah, it can be helpful. But what I found, the one-off deep spiritual experience is not the thing that's going to continually shape my heart and my mind and my body in a particular direction. Right? And that's just not how this physiology works. It works by being shaped in a particular way. And the Buddha was all about this. So yeah, the one-off powerful dramatic experiences, great. But they need to be supported by some kind of regularity. And it, it does feel like to me, I love this image that the Buddha sometimes gives, is, is it's kind of like shaping a, a river. I'm learning how to shape it, in a, shape it in a particular direction towards awakening, towards a freedom. And it's important for me to remember, and hopefully you've realized this, I don't get to choose the particular river that this mind and this body are. Like I, I've been thrown into a world that was not my own making. I wouldn't have made a world <laughs> like this. And I'm situated, you could say, within various histories that were not my own choosing. I've been thrown into the history of my family, my society. 
that contains both the blessings and the curses that are there. That's what's shaped this river of this heart and mind partly. So it, it's not my own making, but it's mine to shape. I didn't make it, but I'm, I'm responsible for it, to continue to shape it in a particular direction. So what that what is that going to be for you to allow yourself to have some kind of regularity, whether it's the support of community, connected with maybe the passion that you have for this path, or maybe it's an aspiration like giving some kind of gift like this land is doing moment after moment after moment, just a small gift, whether it's for your friends or your family, your children your students, whatever it is, what inspires you. So I want to touch upon one other area of giving a gift, a particular arena to reflect on giving in terms of compassion for later generations. And that's in terms of giving in relationship to the earth herself. been touched by the earth here. You're intertwined with the earth. It runs through your body and through your breath. What kind of gift can you give her? And the reason I want to bring this question is uh, because for me, as I said before, it can feel so overwhelming because of the immensity of what is happening to the earth and how it can feel so complicated in terms of the systemic forces at play with it. Had a, had a gift to her, even the small gifts. And I wanna be clear, in this talk, I'm not gonna be going into the various ways one can do it because there's so many ways to give these gifts. And I think that would be such a beautiful thing to do sometimes, just to get together and popcorn started to hear, like, how do you give a gift to the earth so we can hear that and feel that and be inspired in some manner? And instead, I, I want to emphasize this value of small gifts in this realm and to feel them and what's sometimes needed to really land the sense of even giving a small gift. Whatever that is for you, if you feel moved to give back to this land, this earth in some way. And some of it I think has to do with, at least for me, my relationship with myself as a human being and my relationship to the other folks in this species. There's a poem that expresses that, that's called uh, Curved Build Thrasher. Curved Build Thrasher. <coughs> 
The curved billed thrasher digs the small purple potatoes from the raised garden beds and ruins them. He sets them back into the hollows in which they grew, each speared neatly once through the heart. <laughs> the radishes, too, become his casualties. Red and white targets bullseyed by a bird's whim. <laughs> when the thrasher gets trapped in the garden shed, who wouldn't hesitate before opening the door <laughs> and releasing them? <laughs> knowing he will return to his mischief. We give up, then, on the garden. Though the hot days drag on, the growing season is already too far gone for, everything, for anything to be replanted. We fry the few yellow squash blossoms which the bird has deemed we should keep <laughs> and lick salt and oil from our, from our fingers. We forgive the bird, which is the same as we are, trying in his own way to learn how to love the world, every day allocating to himself just a little bit more of it. We forgive the bird, which is the same as we are, trying in his own way to learn how to love the world, every day allocating to himself just a little bit more of it. This species of animal that I'm a part of, human beings, I, I actually do think we're trying in our own way to learn how to love the world. Yeah, maybe not the most sophisticated species in terms of getting that lesson down. I'm not, I'm not advocating any kind of thing that, at least I, I really still don't really believe that we're somehow supreme over other species out there in terms of loving the world. For me, I think uh, I have a lot to learn from these other species in terms of how to love this world. Right, and this is why we forgive the bird, because I realize it's just as I am trying to learn how to love the world. What's it like to have compassion and forgiveness for yourself? For the species you're part of. A softening of the, of, of the heart. And yes, I want to be clear, there's a place for skillful, compassionate outrage. I'm not saying that. I'm not denying that. But for me, the, the human species is just another species on this planet. What is it like to acknowledge that and to give a small gift in some way? Because sometimes for me it can feel so immense, the kind of 
kind of uh, damage that's been done from the momentum of this particular species. And yet there's still a place where I can learn to give a small gift, like that land out there. I also find it's so helpful because there there can be a sense of, uh, at least I can notice this in my own heart and mind, and I sometimes see it reflected around me of getting so wrapped up in fixing and figuring out. And yes, there is such a place for that right now. I'm not denying that. But there's a way of getting lost in it as well. Where I can uh, lose sight of the love and compassion that I find so important about how I am in the world. To really learn from this land to have compassion for later generations. And what's it like to have a small act that just makes a small difference rather than a big difference? Not that it's denying the importance of big differences, so I can be here in relationship with land, regardless of what happens next for later generations or the lack of later generations. I think what I'm trying to get at is really expressed by this, this is such a important poem for me, by this uh, poem by W.S. Merwin called Place. He says, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. Again, the first line, on the last day of the world, I would want to plant a tree. What for? Not for the fruit. The tree that bears the fruit is not the one that was planted. I want the tree that stands in the earth for the first time with the sun already going down and the water touching its roots in the earth full of the dead and the clouds passing one by one over its leaves. What would it be like to also offer, be able to offer that kind of gift? To plant a tree on the last day of the world. Yes, there's a place to fix and to figure out. And there's also a place to plant that tree on the last day of the world. To offer such a small gift, to behold the beauty, to be with something bigger than you and me. So may we be inspired by that land out here for this next retreat that begins tomorrow to be inspired by this land, our teacher, and to emulate her, to emulate him, to emulate them by embodying this beautiful quality of generosity 
but so intertwined with compassion for later generations. Thank you, thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.